Today, we are going to look at the very first piece of furniture for, in our study of the Wilderness Tabernacle. And again, I was reminded as I was reviewing and preparing for this teaching today that just after New Year's Day in 2013, uh, my daughter and I had occasion to be driving a little boy to a rehearsal. My husband and my daughter and I are involved in this uh, Christian community and educational theater program. And so we were doing a play called Father of the Bride. And on the way to rehearsal, we were taking this little boy. He was playing my son in the play. And uh, cute as a little speckled pup he was, very precocious little guy, nine years old. And it was just after Christmas. So I was asking, and we were, it was really the first time we had spent any time with him apart from rehearsal itself. So I was just trying to get to know him a little bit. And I always ask people questions. I don't know if you all find that uh, interesting or a little off-putting, but I'm a question asker. So I started saying the usual things you would ask a nine-year-old boy right after Christmas. Did you have a good Christmas, Jacob? And he said, yeah, I got a bike. Really? That's cool. Yeah, and I can do tricks on it. Really? Yeah, like I'd ride real fast and I hit the curb going really, really fast and then I like fly through the air for a really long time. And I'm driving and I go, sweet, <laughs> do you wear a helmet? Because how many of you grew up and helmets were not a thing? Okay, look at that, it's a plague. It's a miracle any of us made it out alive. When I was in the third grade, I had my brand new bike. It had a blue banana glitter seat. Are y'all feeling me? With the big handlebars. And I was, I was all that. And I was riding down. I think it had streamers from the handlebars too. So I'm riding down the neighborhood street where I grew up. And I'm saying to myself, eight years old mind, I've lived here all my life. I bet I could find my way around here with my eyes closed. A helmet would have been a really good idea. Because I woke up in the gutter. There was a palm tree and there was blood in the gutter. And I'm just saying, a helmet would have been a really good idea. So I say, Jacob, do you wear a helmet? And he's, yeah, like there's no other option on the planet. And so I said, that's really neat. Now, have you started school yet? And he said, not yet. Oh, really, what's your favorite subject in school? I like math. I'm really good at math and science. Really good for you, Jacob. Well done. And my daughter now chimes in and she says, since you're really good at math and science, do you know what you want to be when you grow up? And he said, yeah, I want to be a missionary because you get to go to really cool places all over the world and tell people about Jesus. How sweet is that? Now, I do not know if that little lad's parents ever studied the wilderness tabernacle, but they were doing for their little ones exactly what the Lord intended all of us to do. And what he intended is that Christ be in the very center of every life, of every family life. And that is what the tabernacle did. It was the Lord's plan that they would plant this tabernacle right in the very center, in the very heart of the camp. And that everything else would radiate out from that central point. And that's what Jacob's little family had done with their little ones. They had placed Jesus right at the heart of their little family. And that caused this little guy to want to take that good news and go out and share the good news of Jesus Christ with everyone. What a wonderful gift to give to our children. So according to God's absolutely perfect design, the tabernacle was right in the heart of the nation and everything about Jewish life revolved around it and radiated out from that central place of worship.
And the Israelites were meant, as we are meant, to be a people that were set apart. A holy nation set apart from every other worldly system. God had every single detail mapped out for them. And that included where each tribe would camp, whether they were assigned to the north, the south, the east, or the west side of the tabernacle. As we, in this uh, hemisphere, when we orient ourselves, we tend to look north first. That's the way we position ourselves. Look to the north, and then we go from there. But in the Near East, they look to the rising of the sun. So their orientation is to look east. In fact, that's why the far east is called the Orient. It comes from a Latin word that means the rising of the sun. So everything about Hebrew life was facing east. And I think that's interesting because it was God anticipating, even in the camp, the coming of his son the second time. For we know that Jesus, when he comes again, he will look to the east because he's coming from that direction. And so that was mapped out in the tabernacle all those many millennia ago. If you were numbered in Israel in that day, no matter where you were camped, you could look right to the very center of the camp and you would know that God was there in your midst. Everything was measured by the presence of God in the camp So as we continue through the semester, you're going to begin to recognize some patterns in these furniture pieces, Uh, especially if you can do some study on your own. I highly recommend you do that. You're going to notice that there are the details of the tabernacle are recorded three times between Exodus 25 and Exodus 40. Now, that's an awful lot of ink devoted to one subject, and that's just here in Exodus. I said last week that other than Jesus Christ himself, this is the most often spoken of subject in all of scripture. It is sprinkled throughout, clear into the book of Revelation. Now, the first time that it is recorded in scripture, it's the moment when God invites Moses to come up onto Mount Sinai with him, and he gives him the instructions for building the tabernacle, blueprints, if you will. The second time that it's mentioned is when they actually construct the pieces of furniture and get everything ready. And then the third time is when they actually establish the tabernacle, inaugurate the service of worship, and it becomes fully functional. As the Israelites wandered in the wilderness for those 40 years, they followed a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. And as you look at this picture, I just want you to uh, take a moment and put yourself in their shoes. Think right now, how old are you? Subtract 40. Okay? So if we do that, That would make me 19 years old when they set out from Egypt. Some of you wouldn't have even been born when they set out from Egypt. And if you were like me and you were numbered in that first generation, that means you would have died in the wilderness, never having reached the promised land. That's a very sobering thought. All of my children, think about your own situation. Your children would have been born on the march. Every one of your children possibly would have been born out there in the wilderness. You would have given birth. You would have raised them, married them off, become a grandmother, all out of a tent that wandered through the wilderness. But for you young'uns, 
you would only know manna. And you would think everybody's water came out of a rock that followed you through the wilderness. You would never know what it would be to have the whip of the slave drivers on your back. But you also would not remember the Passover and the angel of death and the blood of the lamb on your doorposts. Older women, do you see how important it is to teach the younger what you have witnessed firsthand? And I'm telling you, children's ministry is where it's at because we have a story to tell. Those littles have no idea what the Lord has, have, has had you experience in your life, whether it's a young life or an old life at this point. But we all have a testimony, and the Lord wants us to share it with the next generation. Every time the cloud would lift, they would, uh, were to pack up and move. So this tabernacle was meant to be portable. A team of very highly trained priests could take it down and set it up with reverential precision in absolutely no time at all. But remember, these are real people. This is real history. It is not myth, folklore, or fable. This is reality for these people. But at the same time, it is a type. It is a model that is full of pictures that we might learn more and better of our Savior, Jesus Christ. For example, as you approach the tabernacle, you would see that there is only one door. Only one door in that outer courtyard. One entrance, one way. Jesus said, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. But he who does not enter by the door, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. Also, we read in 1 Timothy chapter 2, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus said in John chapter 4, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. And God planted a model for all of that here in the tabernacle in the wilderness. So as you enter that one and only door, there in front of you in a place of prominence would be the altar of sacrifice. It's also called the brazen or the bronze altar, also called the altar of burnt offering. And Malachi calls it the table of the Lord. It's the largest piece of furniture in the tabernacle, and it would be the very, very first thing you see. So we're going to turn to Exodus chapter 27. Exodus 27, and we are going to read here in just a moment those instructions given to Moses by God on Mount Sinai that very first time. Exodus 27, we'll read verses 1 through 8. When you get there, then pull out your handout, your handout. I'm trying to train myself to stop saying your your, take out your handout. Anyway, get your, <laughs> take out your handouts. And this is going to be the format. You people who are administrative are going to love me at the end of this study. This is the format that we will use for all of the pieces of furniture when we introduce a new piece. So I have given you some of the verses right up top. You'll see that there's a list of verses, three sets from Exodus. Those are the first three times that God mentions it. That's the building of. 
Then the second one from numbers, the moving of instructions. And then we're going to fill in some of these blanks as we go. Now, I've given those to you to save some time. But also, if you want to study on your own, if you want to fill in some of these blanks on your own, you are welcome to do that. Uh, and it will enrich your understanding by far. So we're going to fill in the first few. And then we'll start to read here in Exodus chapter 27. The location of the altar of sacrifice is the east side of the courtyard just inside the door. So it faces this rising of the sun there in the east, but it's inside the door. It's not outside. The materials used to build this piece of furniture, acacia wood, acacia is spelled A-C-A-C-I-A, acacia wood, and it was overlaid with bronze. Now, just because I've got it in my notes, I'm going to tell you, there is a difference between bronze and brass, and it depends on the Bible translation you're reading. And if you look this word up in the Hebrew, it is copper or bronze or brass. So it's one of those metals that could go several different ways. It could have been copper, and bronze and brass are both copper alloys. So bronze is a little sturdier. It resists corrosion and metal fatigue. It's a better conductor of heat and electricity. It's kind of a reddish brown color, and it's copper that is primarily mixed with tin, where brass is kind of a muted golden color. It's not as shiny as gold, but it's more to the yellow side. It's generally copper that is mixed with zinc. So I just wanted you to know that I know. So there you go. Do with that whatever, whatever you choose to do. But I will probably refer to it consistently as bronze because that was the way I learned it. And the uh, King James that I sometimes dip into, I believe calls it bronze as well, or brazen is what it will refer to. So, so you know that. Now, the dimensions you will find as we read along that God gives it to Moses in the biblical measurement of cubits. I will give it to you in feet and inches. You can fill in the cubits if you prefer as we go. So roughly, this altar would have been seven and a half feet square and four and a half feet high. Seven and a half feet square and four and a half feet high. And with that, we will begin to read God's instructions to Moses. Exodus 27, starting in verse 1. And you shall make the altar of acacia wood five cubits long, there's your cubit measurement, and five cubits wide. The altar shall be square and its height shall be three cubits. You can do the math yourself if you're filling in the blanks at home. A cubit is roughly 18 inches. So 5 times 18 divided by 12 gives you the, the number you need. I just want you to know that's the most elaborate mathematical problem I will ever speak out loud. <laughs> Verse 2. You shall make its horns, this is a decorative but also a practical element. You shall make its horns on its four corners. Its horn shall be of one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. You shall make its pails for removing its ashes and its shovels and its basins and its forks and its firepans. You shall make all its utensils of bronze. 
You shall make for it a grating of network of bronze. And this picture that I have up here kind of shows you that idea. Some of you are visual, and this is infinitely more understandable than the words on the page. So it's like a grill that you then insert into the framework of the altar. So when it refers to that network of bronze, it's that so the fire can come up through and consume the altars that are laid upon it. Okay? Just wanted you to see that. Uh, the network of bronze, and on the net you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. You shall put it beneath, under the ledge of the altar, so that the net will reach halfway up the altar. You shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. Its poles shall be inserted into the ring so that the poles shall be on the two sides of the altar when it is carried. You shall make it hollow with planks, as it was shown you in the mountain, so you shall make it. The altar of sacrifice is God's picture of the cross of Jesus Christ. Here we behold the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. It is here at the altar of sacrifice that the innocent is slain, his blood poured out, and the entire bloody sacrifice consumed by fire. This is the cross of Jesus Christ. And the price that he paid so that you would not know the fiery condemnation and judgment that is our due. Here the innocent paid the price for my sin and for yours. From the institution of this whole sacrificial system... The writer of Hebrews calls it divine worship. To the day Jesus Christ was crucified, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of animals were slain here at this altar of sacrifice. When Solomon built the temple, they carried the system through. And with just a few interruptions in Jewish history, it carried through to the time of Christ and beyond until the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., here at this altar, the ground would have been made muddy by the bloody sacrifice that was continuously flowing. That river of blood flowed day and night. And all of it was in anticipation of the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 9 tells us that with shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Ephesians 1 says, in him, Jesus Christ, we have redemption through his blood. If we were to approach this altar, we would be immediately confronted by this bloody spectacle and a great fire burning. It's a picture of sin being judged. It was an endless task, though, because the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. It merely covers sin. Those sacrifices were not the way. They were there to show us the way. They were a pattern. They were a model of the one who would come to save us from our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Did you notice when we read, it got a little tedious, and I will tell you, when you're reading those details that God is giving Moses, sometimes you can go, yeah, let's move on. What do you do next? But, the, but God gave such exacting detail. Did you notice? 
He didn't leave anything to chance, as with everything that pertains to the tabernacle. He did not say to Moses, now go, you know, off you go, Mo. Go knock yourself out. Oh, and by the way, if you cannot find these exact materials, make substitutions wherever necessary. No, no, he did not. He gave specific, thorough, exacting details, and he even used visual aids. Somehow, when God gave the instructions for this model, he showed Moses the real deal in heaven because this whole tabernacle system is a model of the throne room in heaven. I don't know how he did it, but while they were on the mountain, he lifted somehow the veil between the physical and temporal world that we live in and the spiritual eternal in the heavenlies. And he said to Moses repeatedly, build it like the one I showed you. When we exit these earth suits and stand in glory, we are going to see all of this tabernacle laid out before us in heaven in some form or another. And every detail points to Jesus Christ. Exodus chapter 25, verse 8. God said, let them construct a sanctuary for me. A sanctuary is a sacred, holy place that is set apart from everything else. God is telling Moses, let them build a holy, sanctified, set-apart place for me that I may dwell with them. That just blows my mind. According to all, verse 9, that I am going to show you as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furniture, just so you shall construct it. God lifted that veil. Build it like the one I showed you. What does it mean beyond the fact that there is a tabernacle in heaven? Beyond that, it means this is Jesus Christ, what he will come and do for you in every part and in every particular. You could actually, if you felt like it, build yourself a model from the details given here. They are so specific if you wanted to undertake a project like that. Uh, but we want to take a closer look here at some of these details. Exodus 27, verse 1, God said, You shall make it of acacia wood. Every detail, a picture of Christ, remember. Acacia wood is also called shittim wood. It was part of the free will contribution that God asked Moses to ask of the people. He requested that the Israelites bring all these different materials of their own free will. Now, the acacia is a thorny tree that dwells in the deserts. It has been attributed by some to be the same thing that, Mo uh, that um, yeah, Moses saw in the burning bush, that the burning bush was an acacia. Also, in some Christian traditions, it is the crown of thorns, the acacia. It grows out of the hard, dry ground in the desert. And it is not a pretty tree. It's kind of a gnarled, scraggly-looking thing. Speaking of the Messiah, Isaiah writes in chapter 53, verse 2, For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of the parched ground. He has no stately form. He has no beauty, no majesty, no comeliness that we should desire him, that we should be attracted to him. Of all the materials that are specific to the building of the furniture pieces themselves, this is the only material that was once a living thing. But in order to be used, it had to, be, uh, to become part of this whole sacrificial system. It had to be cut down. 
Isaiah writes in chapter 53, verse 8, speaking of Messiah again, he was taken uh, from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people. He was stricken. Acacia wood was a very strong, close-grained wood. It tended to grow like an umbrella. And every time I see a picture of it, I think of the Song of Solomon, his banner over me is love. But the strength of it, too, reminds me of uh, Psalm 140, verse 7. Lord, my Lord, my strong Savior, you shield my head on the day of battle. Acacia wood is particularly resistant to pests, whether they be insects or predatorial animals. Uh, and it is known for its resilience and resistance to decay. Psalm 16, verse 10, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, a prophetic word from Jesus himself nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. The Hebrew word shittim or shittim, it has embedded in it, deep in its root, the idea of scourging or piercing. Remember, it's a thorny tree. Isaiah 53, 5, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell on him, and by his scourging, we are healed. This acacia wood, you will see it throughout the tabernacle, is a picture of the humanity and the incorruptible nature of Christ, who did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. And when Jesus took on that human form, emptied himself of all that glory in heaven, left the real deal tabernacle to come here to be our sacrifice, he took on human flesh to, the word is tabernacle among us. He took on human flesh to dwell among us, to tabernacle among us, is what it says there in John 1:14. Until, that is, he was cut down out of the land of the living for my transgression, but not for mine only. Look at the detail in God's design again back in Exodus 27, 2. God says you will make horns on its four corners, and the horns shall be of one piece with it, and the whole is overlaid then with bronze. Horns in Old Testament typology are symbolic of power. And remember that the altar was a perfect square. And those horns then would be integrated on the four corners. Perfect square and power pictured there. We still use the expression today, the four corners of the earth. His perfect power reaches to the four corners of the earth. But that's not all. Because God instructed that there would be rings mounted on the side. So that you could insert those long poles and then the priest would be able to bear 
each piece of furniture on their shoulders throughout the wandering in the wilderness. You put all of these elements together and a model emerges. What you see here pictured is the perfect power of the salvation of God through the blood of Jesus Christ. And it's on the move. And it reaches to the four corners of the earth. There is no place. There is no person. There is no era where the salvation of God has not been available to all who would come. But remember, there's just the one door. You must come through the door in order to access the tabernacle and the altar of sacrifice here. Because the Lamb of God truly does take away the sin of the whole world. And he's on the move today. That's an exciting thing to consider. Through you. He is on the move today through you. There's one more little interesting thing about acacia wood that I just discovered recently. And I will read you a little description. Acacia wood is used to prevent erosion due to its spreading and resilience. Some species are potentially invasive as they spread fast and are extremely difficult to eradicate. Now, because we are in Christ Jesus and he is in us, what we can see in these details as we are carrying Jesus about, bearing him to this lost and dying world, what we can see here in this description is a picture of us as well. So I'm going to read it again, but I'm going to change a few of the words so you can get a flavor of what I mean. Acacia wood, I'm going to substitute Christians there by the grace of God. Christians can be used to prevent erosion due to their spreading testimony and resilience in Christ. The testimony of some species is potentially invasive as they spread fast and are extremely difficult to eradicate. In other words, they get to go to cool places all over the world and tell people about Jesus. If only we were considered a spreading and resilient influence. The altar of acacia wood, remember, is covered in bronze. Bronze is a symbol of judgment. We will talk about that more in one of the future sessions. But right now, suffice to say, Christ is the righteous judge. He is the only one who is worthy to judge, but he is also the altar of sacrifice. If we do not stop here at the altar of sacrifice, then we have no part in what Christ has done on our behalf. If you do not stop here in your walk with Christ, and if you are in this room today and you have never accepted Jesus as your Savior, let today be the day you stop and acknowledge what he did for you and receive it. There is no such thing. If you omit this step at the altar of sacrifice, there is no forgiveness for sin. There is no celebration. There is no joy. There is no partaking in divine worship. There's nothing that is uh, a blessing in your life. You do not understand, recognize, or comprehend to your own use the beauty of holiness. You must stop here and see all that he has done for you. Outside in the courtyard area of the tabernacle, we see what he did. The closer we get to the tabernacle proper, the more we see who he is. But outside, it's all about the sacrifice. The cross is God's ultimate 
altar of sacrifice. And until we stop here and receive all that Jesus has done, we are far off. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13 says, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. God was so specific in giving those instructions because he was describing his beloved son, Jesus Christ, the only begotten beloved son is described here, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. This is the first step in God's redemptive work. It's the first step toward holiness. And holiness is a life that is set apart for him and by him. It's a life of true worship. And that kind of life is a process. It is definitely a process of separation from the world and from our old way of thinking and doing things and striving to be good and acceptable on our own. God is on the move. And with infinite patience, he is reaching out to this lost and dying world. He reached to me, sinful, stubborn, rebellious, hard-headed, hard-hearted me. And he is still reaching out in that work of salvation all over the planet today. One of the many ways that he reaches out in my life is through this model of the tabernacle and all that is involved in it. And through all of these pictures, he is showing us the way to holiness, the very first stop being right here at the altar of sacrifice, because the way of the cross is always going to lead you straight home. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for the sacrifice of your son, for the forgiveness of our sin. Thank you for drawing us near by the blood of the lamb and for now setting us apart as your very special treasure. And you call us holy and blameless, Lord, in Christ Jesus. As we continue each week to study your word, please be our teacher and our guide. Tell us exactly what and how to truly worship in spirit and in truth, to worship Jesus, for he is worthy. We ask all of these things in the name of our Savior, our strength and our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. And the bride of Christ said, Amen. Oh, come let us adore him.